Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. Mad Men was the creation of a former writer of The Sopranos, whose pilot script was rejected by HBO, starring an unknown leading man and residing on a second-tier movie channel. The New York Times. Matthew Weiner took a breath and pitched his Mad Men TV pilot to a movie channel, not a network, not a studio, against the advice of every industry person he knew. At this point, he had honed his pitch to perfection, and the AMC executives said they were interested. Progress. But they echoed the same concerns Weiner had heard ad nauseum for five years. They worried a series about the advertising business wouldn't, quote, generate the type of water cooler conversations AMC would want the show to spark. In order to consider the series, they needed more of a through line that would grip viewers from episode to episode, something beyond Weiner's fictional advertising agency to keep viewers interested in Don Draper. Weiner says, to sum up, they wanted to know who Don Draper's Dr. Melfi was. Who would be the confidant-slash-storytelling vehicle to whom he divulged his inner turmoil? They said, what's the bigger story? 
But as Weiner explained, in that era, men didn't talk about their problems. Don Draper would not be a sharer. As Weiner tells the story, this conversation with AMC happened in June of 2005, and he told them that by August, he'd present them with a solution. But the truth was, he was panicking. He had zero ideas. He figured come August, he'd just vamp for a while. Maybe talk about more 60s brands, Duncan Hines. But then it hit him. If there could be no Dr. Melfi extracting the motives behind Tony Soprano's actions each episode, what Don Draper needed was an interesting backstory that explained his behavior. So Weiner went back to the drawing board. And by the drawing board, I mean the pile of rejected scripts he once pitched after college. And he uncovered a film he'd never quite finished, one that may ring a bell from part one. It was about a soldier who stole the identity of a deceased officer in the Korean War. That was it. So Weiner met the AMC executives for dinner. Over New York strip steak, Weiner pitched the head of AMC a solution to the movie channel's concerns. Don Draper was an ad man. A creative, a husband, a father, a philanderer, a workaholic, an alcoholic, a smoker, a masterful presenter, and a fraud. Between the pilot episode and the season one finale, the source of Draper's complexities would slowly unravel. Don Draper isn't Don Draper at all. Fifteen years before the pilot is set, a young man named Dick Whitman volunteers to serve in the Korean War to escape a life of poverty and abuse. While stationed, he meets his commanding officer, Lieutenant Don Draper. Private Whitman finds out Lieutenant Draper is set to be discharged soon. But a short while later, a horrific explosion kills Lieutenant Draper instantly before Whitman's eyes, and a traumatized Whitman sees an escape. He crawls over to the deceased lieutenant and swaps their dog tags, assuming Draper's identity. He serves Draper's only remaining 80 days before returning to America, where he'll live the rest of his life as someone else, untethered to his past, but an imposter and a deserter, in constant fear of being exposed. When Weiner finished his pitch, the head of AMC just stared at him in silence, mesmerized. Executive Christina Wayne said it was one of the most amazing story arcs she'd ever heard. Weiner was giddy. Finally, someone understood his vision. That pitch got the Mad Men pilot greenlit. There was just one problem. AMC couldn't afford the millions of dollars required to finance a TV pilot. What they needed was a studio partner. So AMC met with Canadian-based studio Lionsgate. The then Lionsgate chairman told TV Insider, there were major questions from their distribution team about the viability of a period show that was so insular. Advertising was just one aspect of American business life. 
He also thought it was comical that a basic cable channel known for airing reruns of movies wanted to produce an original series. Lionsgate rejected Mad Men. Next, AMC met with Fox Television Studios. It turned them down, so they met with Media Rights Capital, another hard pass. Studio after studio rejected Mad Men. One AMC executive said the responses were essentially, yeah, it's not for us. And who the F is AMC? AMC was out of options. The company's vice president of programming said he knew two things for sure. One, the script was solid. And two, AMC didn't have the budget, the time, or the manpower to develop a series from scratch. But he also knew the future of AMC depended on their foray into original programming. They needed to win awards. The only way to do that was to put quality content on basic cable. So, as he said, a lot of the handcuffs were removed. AMC decided to bite the bullet and self-finance the Mad Men pilot for $3.3 million. At this point, The Sopranos was still in its last season. And with the official green light on his new show, Weiner was now jumping back and forth between Sopranos writer and Mad Men showrunner. AMC couldn't afford for Weiner to shoot outdoor scenes, so he knew he would have to make the interior scenes as rich as possible. And Weiner says he had a very specific vision for his sets. Clutter. As Weiner explains, if you look closely at most Hollywood versions of a 1960s workplace, you might notice that lamp cords are hidden, desks are shiny, carpets unstained. But he says a true workplace is gritty. New Yorkers would step into the elevator in the morning with their bagels and a side of soot. Ashtrays would be overflowing. There would be cords everywhere and littered desks, drawers full of wrappers and rogue pens. Weiner wanted business cards strewn haphazardly on filing cabinets, genuine 1960s coupons on the Draper dining room table, a Zenith TV remote askew on the arm of a couch. And ceilings. Weiner insisted the ceilings of the office space be visible. Usually, set ceilings are non-existent, open space above for light fixtures and cameras. But Weiner insisted they show ceiling panels to make the set more authentic, much to the chagrin of the lighting department. Weiner didn't want his fictional ad agency to look like a 1960s movie or magazine, because he felt cinema and Vogue were design leaders. Real people were design followers, and more often than not, way behind. All his characters would have come from different boroughs, different tax brackets, different backgrounds, meaning the busboy would be wearing clothes from the 40s, ill-fitting and out of step. And the younger account men would wear more modern suits than the name partners, but the partners would look more expensive. The secretary's makeup would look as though they applied it themselves, and their hairsprayed hairdos would decay as the day wore on. The copywriters would have sweat stains and wrinkled collars, and the characters would repeat outfits, 
like humans do. Mad Men's props master later said one wouldn't say to Weiner, here's the mixing bowl I chose. You'd say to him, here's the mixing bowl I chose, and here's the proof it was made the year before the year we're shooting in. That kind of detail took time and effort, and money. As Weiner says, reality is expensive. With AMC footing the bill, the movie channel was getting nervous. Then came time for casting. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Nearly 30 years before Matthew Weiner first penned his pilot script for Mad Men, a little boy was born in St. Louis, Missouri. His name was Jonathan Daniel Ham. But before Ham's life even really began, it was marred by tragedy. At just two years old, his parents divorced, and he moved in with his mom. But by the time he was 10, his mother passed away of cancer. A short while after that, he'd lose his father, too. Ham was a walking, talking juxtaposition, embodying all the high school archetypes at once. On the one hand, he was a handsome jock, middle linebacker on the football team. 
On the other hand, he acted in school plays, even playing Judas in Godspell. And he got good grades to boot. Ham attended the University of Texas before transferring to the University of Missouri. But it was there that his reality set in, and he became depressed. Without either of his parents, he was living in his sister's basement, working as a waiter and a dishwasher. He was lost. His sister encouraged him to see a therapist, but Ham insisted he wasn't a sharer. And that's when an ad in the local paper caught Ham's eye. A local theater company was passing through town, performing A Midsummer Night's Dream. Ham attended the open audition and landed himself a role. And after his very first performance, a member of the University of Missouri's theater program approached him and said, Who are you? Why aren't you part of the drama department? Then invited Ham to come audition for a scholarship. So that's exactly what he did. He auditioned. And once again, he earned a part. This time, playing the role of theater student with a full ride. And he loved it. Over the next two years, Ham did 15 plays, and he started thinking, if he kept getting picked, maybe it was a sign he should do this for a living. Act, or at least teach acting. Ham decided to return to his high school and become a drama teacher. But it wasn't long before he took his own advice. And at 24, Ham loaded up his 1986 Toyota Corolla with a broken heater that blasted hot air all summer. And with $150 in savings, he hit the road, headed straight for his aunt's house in Los Angeles. For six months, Ham slept at his aunt's. He took a job waiting tables and managed to land a talent agent through a high school ex-girlfriend's brother. He went on auditions, but Ham racked up rejections almost as quickly as he racked up parking tickets. Eventually, through his restaurant job, Ham was able to move out of his aunt's house and into a rundown apartment he'd share with a handful of other wannabe actors, one of whom was Paul Rudd. But for three years, Ham didn't land a part. Casting people kept telling him he looked too old to play his own age, but too young to play a dad. The feedback? His face looked ten years older than it was. There was a while there where he was surviving off $5,000 a year. Ham says with that kind of poverty, you aren't buying food. You're eating ramen noodles and living off the generosity of your roommates. He was hustling and scrambling around town, trying to book a single job, until his car was repossessed. Ham owed $1,600 in parking tickets. Ham gave himself a deadline. If he wasn't earning a living as an actor by his 30th birthday, he'd quit. There were a lot of 40-year-old waiters in Los Angeles, and Ham figured at least he always had teaching as a backup. In 1997, Ham got his first ever acting credit, Gorgeous Guy at Bar, in a single episode of Ally McBeal. At least it was something. But after that, nothing. The following year, his talent agent dropped him. They didn't want clients who didn't get work. 
In an act of desperation, Ham took a job as a set dresser for adult films. But it only made him more depressed. He says everyone on that set, quote, reeked of sadness. It wasn't worth the $150 a day. Non-union, no benefits. In the year 2000, Ham landed his first break, a minor part as a hunky firefighter on NBC's Providence. Then in 2001, he auditioned and was cast in a movie called We Were Soldiers, starring Mel Gibson and Sam Elliott. It was an actual Hollywood movie. He couldn't believe he was Greg Kinnear adjacent. His appearance in that film paid Ham enough to quit his day job waiting tables, and it was on that very set he celebrated his 30th birthday. But after the film wrapped and Providence finished its last season, Ham was out of work again. He did seven network tests, including one for The West Wing. But it seemed like every part went to Rob Lowe. And that's when Ham had a moment of humbling clarity. He realized if he could steadily land, quote, undemanding parts in less than gripping shows, he could pay the bills and settle for a life in the middle. If he plugged away, he could probably buy a modest house, a car with a heater that worked, have a kid, maybe even take a trip once a year. And that's when he came across the audition pages for Mad Men, seeking a tall, dark, and handsome James Garner type for its lead role. As Ham told the story to Esquire, when he picked up the script for Mad Men, he remembered having two thoughts. One, Mad Men, bad title. And two, AMC, a non-network. But then he turned the page. As Ham poured over the script, he turned to his girlfriend and said, this is the best pilot I've ever read in my life. She was shocked. Usually his responses to pilots were lukewarm at best. The phrase, not terrible, comes to mind. Don Draper was a demanding role in a gripping show. Nothing like the parts he'd auditioned for before, except maybe The West Wing. And he knew he had to be in this show. So Ham went to the audition. Weiner wasn't interested in having a famous actor play Don Draper, which was a good thing, since AMC wasn't interested in paying for one. A quick scan of John Hamm's resume told Weiner he had zero lead role experience. He did, however, have the tall, dark, and handsome thing down. Weiner says Hamm didn't audition super well, but there was something about him. When Ham walked out of the room that day, Weiner turned to his casting director and said, That man was not raised by his parents. It's perhaps an odd observation to make about a complete stranger, but looking back, it was the most insightful nugget Weiner could have gleaned. Don Draper's mother died in childbirth, and his father died when he was 10. Like Ham, he was forced to grow up quickly and alone. Weiner says he had a clear litmus test when casting Don Draper. 
at the end of the pilot, viewers find out he's married. So the actor who played him needed to have the qualities where viewers wouldn't immediately hate him. Would they see him as a terrible person? Or would they see him as a wounded person? Behind Ham's eyes was a woundedness you couldn't fake. So Weiner declared Ham a top contender. But his director wasn't so sure. Weiner had hired Alan Taylor from The Sopranos to direct the Mad Men pilot. And Taylor wasn't sold on Ham's appearance. He felt his good looks might distract from the character. After having worked for years with James Gandolfini, Taylor was weary of casting someone who looked more like a movie star than a great actor, what's been called reverse prejudice. So they had Ham audition again, and again, and again. Ham auditioned seven times against 80 other actors. Then they had him read lines in full hair and makeup. The classic short draper cut, the wool suit, lowball glass in hand. And that day, Weiner said he saw it all come together. Ham had the look of 60s masculinity. As GQ would later describe it, suited, booted, self-possessed, half-cut, and hiding something. But Taylor and AMC still weren't convinced. Weiner vied for Ham with all his might, and now he told the hopeful actor it was up to him to pitch himself to AMC. So Weiner flew Ham from Los Angeles to AMC HQ in New York on his own air miles, in the hopes he'd persuade the executives to hire him for their pilot over drinks at the Gansevoort Hotel. As the table got acquainted, the executives were charmed by Ham's effortless charisma. And it wasn't long before their drinks turned celebratory. Before they parted ways, AMC's senior VP of programming leaned over to Ham and whispered in his ear that he had the job. She couldn't let him fly all the way back to Los Angeles on the edge of his seat. The next role to cast was that of Peggy Olson a character Weiner says was written as merely a storytelling vehicle. A new secretary on her first day at the ad agency, there to show us what life was like for a working woman in that era. And in walked January Jones. January Jones was a struggling actor slash model who, as GQ put it, had been smiling through role after role as babe number four for the better part of five years. Jones could count on two hands the number of times she declared she was quitting acting and moving back to South Dakota. Until, of course, her agent called her with the next audition. She came in to try for Peggy, twice. But Weiner knew immediately she wasn't right for the part. Then one executive had a thought. What if she played the role of Draper's wife? Weiner had a clear vision for Betty Draper. A Jackie type, dark hair. And at that time, Betty Draper had just one line in the pilot, not much of an audition scene. So Weiner scribbled together some more substantial lines, and suddenly, January Jones transformed into Grace Kelly, a honey blonde 60s suburban housewife. 
It was one of the most remarkable auditions he'd ever seen. They had their Betty Draper. But they still needed their Peggy Olsen. When Elizabeth Moss walked into the audition room, she was fresh off the West Wing as President Bartlett's youngest daughter, Zoe. She read her lines, and her total embodiment of the character, a naive but quick study, blew Weiner's mind. Maybe Peggy's role should be bigger than he thought. After Moss's audition, Weiner went to the washroom and burst into tears. She was good. She was so good. This show was going to work. Next on the list was the office manager, Joan Holloway. Weiner says Joan was also meant to be primarily a storytelling vehicle, someone to show viewers the inner workings of the office. Christina Hendricks was working at a hair salon in Fairfax, Virginia, when customers kept telling her she should be a model. So eventually, her mother entered her into a modeling competition to win the cover of Seventeen magazine. She didn't win, but she did make the top ten. And at age 18, Hendricks signed with a modeling agency in New York. Then, by her 20s, she secured representation in Los Angeles. And she and her mother moved all the way across the country. Hendricks says she was never going to look like a typical model. She was curvy and stood all of five foot seven. So once settled in LA, she decided to try her hand at acting. She took lessons and managed to land walk-on parts on ER and without a trace. But otherwise, she says she went on a million auditions and was rejected a million times always for series that would supposedly be her big break on big networks that made big money. Then she picked up the script for Mad Men. Like Ham, she'd seen her fair share of pilot scripts, and finally, for once, she had in her hand one that was actually good. Hendricks auditioned for Joan Holloway, and with her no-nonsense confidence, her piercing green eyes, and her Marilyn-esque figure, she won over Weiner he cast Hendricks in his pilot. But her talent agency wasn't thrilled. Hendricks' agent told her Mad Men was a sinking ship. They said it was a period piece that would never go anywhere. They told her they needed her to make money, and this show wasn't going to make any money. But when she insisted on taking the pilot anyway, they dropped Hendricks from their roster. Weiner cast John Slattery of Will and & Grace and Jack and & Bobby, and Robert Morse, veteran Hollywood and Broadway actor, as name partners Roger Sterling and Burt Cooper, respectively. Then he cast Vincent Kartheiser as the anxious, scheming account executive Pete Campbell. At the time, Kartheiser had been a working actor for the better part of a decade. When his agent passed along the Mad Men pilot script, his first reaction was, So does this mean I didn't get the other shows I auditioned for months ago? But upon closer inspection, Kartheiser says the script was different. It wasn't the usual crime drama. It wasn't like anything he'd seen on television. He said, I want to work at a place where I get to say these words. 
John Hamm said truly there was no star of the show. There was no big celebrity for the rest of the cast to orbit around. Everyone was a hustling actor who needed the show to succeed. Then, in the spring of 2006, during The Sopranos' final hiatus, Weiner borrowed many of the HBO series' crew members, and they shot the 49-minute Mad Men pilot in Queens in 10 days. The pilot cost AMC money they didn't have. And now their task was to take that pilot, go back to studios, and try to sell it. Otherwise, that $3.3 million was just money down the drain. So AMC lined up some meetings. One AMC executive said they went all over town screening Weiner's pilot. And the response was positive. People were wowed by the characters, the richness of the visuals, of the story. But as soon as they heard what it would cost, the studios were out. A basic cable show should not cost millions per episode. They said even if the show was amazing, no one would ever see it. So, a desperate AMC took the finished pilot back to the first three studios they'd been rejected by. Fox, Media Rights Capital, and Lionsgate. And to their utter shock, all three studios changed their tune. Suddenly, they were all vying for a chance to produce Mad Men. The COO of Lionsgate said she had to have it, and the next day, she flew to New York to meet with AMC. Lionsgate's chairman was nervous. Mad Men's storytelling was slow, deliberate. In his experience, viewers preferred speed and action. But Weiner said he was going to do the exact opposite of that. Let his viewers savor the story. The studio's COO couldn't agree more, and Lionsgate offered AMC the best deal of all three studios. $2 million per episode. Deal. At this time, Weiner was wrapping up his final season on The Sopranos which meant the folks at AMC had 10 months to focus solely on promoting their first original series, starring an unknown cast. Debating what the opening sequence would look like, what the posters would say, creating the silhouetted John Hamm balancing a lucky strike between his fingertips, the Helvetica Mad Men scrawled across each touchpoint. Meanwhile, AMC's sales team went to real-life advertising agencies, trying to convince them to advertise on their show about advertising, to which they all said they weren't ready to commit money to it. But Mad Men had a channel, they had a studio, they had a budget, and they had a time slot, Thursdays at 10 p.m. So Weiner got to work writing the second episode, seven years after he'd written the first. On July 19, 2007, just after Goodfellas, Mad Men premiered on American Movie Classics. AMC figured Goodfellas was an iconic film with a lot of men floating a lot of rules in a lot of dark rooms. It seemed like an apt precursor. 
not many viewers tuned into the Mad Men premiere. AMC's executives started panicking. But then, USA Today called Mad Men a basic cable breakthrough. The Seattle Post Intelligencer called it a classic in the making. And the New York Post posed the question, is it legal in any state for a human to marry a TV show? First came the critics, then came the viewers. Slowly, viewership increased, and what was once a time slot that received 100,000 viewers a week started earning 900,000, an 800% increase. And AMC's advertising jumped from $30,000 per hour to $25,000 a minute. Turns out, a show about advertising did spark the kind of water cooler talk AMC was looking for. After its very first season, Mad Men won six Emmy Awards, including Best Drama, and Matthew Weiner took home an Emmy for Best Writing for the pilot. That same year, Mad Men won a Peabody Award, and the American Film Institute chose the series as a top 10 television program of 2007, and again in 2008. 2009, 2010, 2012, 2013, and 2014. And by its seventh and final season, Mad Men was given a special AFI award for its contributions to American culture. John Hamm would win an Emmy and two Golden Globes for Best Actor. AMC launched its next original series, Breaking Bad, followed closely by The Walking Dead and Better Call Saul solidifying its status among the original programming heavyweights. And Mad Men, the series rejected by HBO, FX, and Showtime, starring an unknown leading man, rejected by studios and advertisers, and residing on a network best known as a second-tier movie channel, became one of the most respected, most awarded, and most critically acclaimed television series in history. to success is full of people telling you what to do or what not to do. They'll tell you if they think you're any good or not. They'll try to elbow you into a corner. But here's the thing. You have to design the life you want. It may only reside in your mind for years without any tangible evidence. But when you aim for that destination, the route becomes clearer and the decisions become easier. You could see Matthew Weiner doing this all along. His college professor tells him his documentary isn't that great, yet Weiner enters it into a film festival anyway. Even though he and his wife are struggling financially, he makes the decision to stay home and write. He shoots an indie film that goes nowhere, but it affirms his passion for storytelling. It aligns with the life he wants. He hates his job writing sitcoms by day, so begins writing Mad Men by night. 
he threatens to fire his agent if he doesn't get his madman script to David Chase. Weiner knows in his heart that part of his grand design involves Chase. Even when every studio rejected his Mad Men script, Weiner not only kept writing, he kept collecting props. He was designing the show as he designed his life. When Weiner took the meeting with AMC against the advice of everyone he knows, it was his fork in the road. Meanwhile, John Hamm was trying to design the life he wanted. After all the years of rejection, he kept auditioning. As did Christina Hendricks, who accepted the madman role even when her agent dropped her for taking it. All three of them stubbornly stuck to their dreams, which laid the foundation for opportunity that ultimately led to the life each of them wanted. Matthew Weiner once said that the most successful people he admired all had one thing in common. They had a lot of dramatic failures. But maybe Don Draper summed it up best when he said, I don't believe in fate. You make your own opportunities. Learn from the failures, stay stubborn, and design the life you want. Never ever give up. Mad Men. Emmy Awards, 16. Emmy nominations, 116. Golden Globe Awards, 5. Rolling Stone Best TV Shows of All Time, number 4. Number of cigarettes smoked, 942. Number of drinks poured, 369. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and recorded remotely this time from London, England. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major sources for this episode are the Television Academy Archive of American Television's interviews with Matthew Weiner. Other significant sources are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on Instagram at apostrophepod. If you enjoyed this episode, we regret to inform you you may also enjoy Rejecting Moonstruck from Season 2. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by career ad man, Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, 
you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.